0: Radio Borders Youth Association. Good afternoon everyone. You are listening to the sound of universal compassion. Today is 28th of May. Today we will continue listening to Tangent's previous program with the book Way of Life by Shanti Davies. Please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3, or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 3377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering. Hello and welcome to the program today. Last week we finished with a quote by the great Vietnamese master Thich Nhat Hanh and we're going to start this program with another. It goes like this. Liberation means, first of all, breaking out of the prison of our past. We need to summon the courage to pull ourselves back up out of the rut of our old familiar habits and comforts. These things don't really bring us happiness, but we've gotten used to them. We think we can't let them go. Why must we, as the Vietnamese expression goes, always come back to swim in the same old pond, even though it's mucky, simply because it's ours? Why deprive ourselves of the crystal clear lake, of the refreshing blue sea with a beach stretching all the way to the new horizon? The joys of life are no less ours. We need to train ourselves in right mindfulness so that wrong mindfulness doesn't keep on dragging us back into the past, keeping us stuck in the slimy old pond of sorrow, nostalgia and regret. We know the mind can have that homing pigeon tendency of always going back to old familiar haunts of pain and misery. Mindfulness, recognition, helps us drop that habit of continually reliving the past. Tell yourself... No, I don't want to go back into that again. I don't want to keep lulling myself into melancholy with those old songs. As soon as we light up the lamp of right mindfulness, wrong mindfulness retreats. Meditation includes cultivating awareness of mental formations like yearning, sadness, self-pity, resentment and so on. If we recognize and embrace these mental formations when they come up, they no longer can carry us away. They go back down again, a little bit weaker than before, to their original states as seeds or images in, in the store consciousness. Now you may ask what he means by recognizing and embracing those old familiar mental formations. And then we will have to return to the Master's five-point process I described in a program a month or so ago. First of all, recognize the emotion for what it is without any attitude. Then make friends with it. Thich Nhat Hanh even recommends talking to it like an old friend. Hello, emotion. I recognize you. How are you going? Then he says we calm the emotion, bringing calm and peace to it as we breathe in and out. Once it is calmed down, we can smile and let it go. Then, with bare attention again, we look deeply into the cause for the emotion and why we want to react as we did perhaps why we react that way again and again. We allow the causes of the disturbance to appear to us and from those causes we can start to transform the emotion. In this way, instead of being aggressive with the emotion and trying to chase it away every time it rears its head, we, de- we deal gently and compassionately with it. Every time we do this, the emotion loses a little of its power over us and, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, it becomes a little weaker than before. The secret has to catch the emotion before it drives us into into a full-blown situation. At the outset, before the emotion takes over our life, there's usually a slight tightening of the mind, a kind of resistance to what is going on. If we can see that happening and catch it at that stage, it will be easy to leave the story of the situation and put our mind directly onto the emotion to recognize it and so on. Once we're in the middle of the emotion, with the story going full bore in the mind, it's much more difficult to just stop and observe. Therefore, we need mindfulness and alertness to continually focus our mind on the very present instant and to be aware when it has wandered off into another era or fantasy and bring it back. This is the focus of the chapter in Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life that we are following in these programs and, as the author says, when mindfulness is set with the purpose of guarding the doorway of the mind, then alertness will come about, and even that which is gone will return. In commenting on this verse, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that even without intros- introspection or alertness, if we have the intention to guard the doorway of the mind, mindfulness will develop automatically, and any mindfulness that has degenerated will be reborn. Here, the doorway of the mind refers to what we allow to enter and affect the mind and what we intend to banish. In a previous verse, Shantideva talks about setting the sentries of mindfulness and alertness at this doorway, and always checking to see if they're working, doing what they're supposed to do. It's easy for mindfulness and alertness to take a little rest, but then we will inevitably find that the mind has wandered into the past, the future, or into a seductive fantasy. And one or more of those unruly emotions are all too ready to burst onto the scene. Then, as Pema Chodron says in her commentary, we have to bring the mind back to the present again and set mindfulness and alertness up once more. No matter how many times we have to bring it back, we just just keep on with this practice and in time our mindfulness and alertness will improve on the job. But now, before we go any further, let's think about our motivation as we usually do in these programs, trying, if we can, to make this time together the most beneficial possible. That means nurturing the intention to attain enlightenment not only for our own sake, but to be of the greatest benefit to others as well, whether that means helping them in the short term or leading them to full enlightenment over a long period of time. Thank you. Now Shantideva goes on to say, When just as I am about to act, I see that my mind is tainted with defilement, at such a time I should remain unmovable like a piece of wood. We should be well aware of those things that should be practiced and those that need to be discarded, says His Holiness the Dalai Lama. When we know these well, then whenever seeing the mind is inclined towards negativity, we should become as immovable as a piece of wood. This suggests that instead of acting out a negative intention, we immediately still our body and use the mind to merely observe what is going on without becoming seduced or involved with the story. A piece of wood allows the wind to blow, the rain to fall, and the sun to shine without being affected. And similarly, if we become as stolid as wood, the negative intention will fade and change, like the weather. We will not have created any heavy negative karma with it. Pema Chodron applies this verse to meditation and talks about the dullness or wildness that may arise when we sit on a cushion. When on checking the mind, we find dullness or wildness, she says. Instead of fueling it with thoughts, stay awake to what is happening without condemning or being carried away. If the mind is drowsy, breathe more deeply and look slightly upwards. And if it rides off into the unruly, stay in the meditation posture but drop the meditation technique altogether. Whatever is happening with our mind, she says, we can see it and make the necessary adjustment. Thus we become our own meditation instructor. Never should I look around distractedly for no purpose. With a resolute mind, I should always keep my eyes cast downwards. This is a particular instruction to monks, and those in the Theravada tradition are well-schooled in walking looking no more than two meters ahead. Normally as we go about our daily business, it's very easy to let the mind go here and there, Especially when we're in a shopping mall with lots of enticing good goodies vying to catch our attention, letting the mind go in this kind of situation just leads to an, uh, an habituation to distraction. If you really want to see what Buddhists mean by a monkey mind, go and wander around the biggest shopping complex you can find without a specific reason. Walking past the brightly lit shops, watch your mind. Watch what your mind does, especially if you're with a couple of friends. To take the mind into control, Shantideva recommends that wherever we go, we should keep our eyes downcast, like the monks, so that the mind is less easily distracted. This then becomes a training in mindfulness in our everyday life when we're not sitting in meditation. Another method that some devotees in the Tibetan tradition use when somewhere like a shopping mall is to see everything as a mental offering to the Buddhas. With this method, they can look at all the wares, but their minds are not distracted or attached because they are constantly practicing mindful generosity. This might take quite a lot of practice though, otherwise it will be very easy for the mind to become fascinated and let go both mindfulness and alertness. I can just imagine going home later and realizing that most of the time one is being dwelling on how desirable some of the objects for sale are. In any case, if we practice the first method, Shantideva says it's not necessary to always keep your head down. But in order to relax the gaze for a short while, I should look around, and if someone appears in my field of vision, I should look at him and say, Welcome. To check if there's any danger on the path, I should look again and again in the four directions. To rest, I should turn my head around and then look behind me. Having examined both ahead and behind, I should proceed to either come or go. Being aware of the necessity for such mindful alertness, I should behave like this in all situations. In her commentary, Pema Chodron says we should not be too tight nor too loose in our practice. Times will come as we go along our way when we will meet people we know, or even some that we don't, and according to the situation, we should be warm and friendly. Or, she says, if someone along the way is wounded, you don't just walk by with downcast eyes. If a little child tickles you, you're not so serious that you can't laugh. Being awake means acting appropriately. The point of this training is not to be distracted by our conditional responses. In this way, we can see clearly what needs to be done and act accordingly. As he said, we care for whatever needs our, our care and destroy whatever needs to be destroyed. Not blinded by likes and dislikes, enemies and friends, we can see very clearly how to proceed. And then Shantideva goes on, Once having prepared for an action with a thought, my body will remain in such a way, then periodically I should look to see how the body is being maintained. Here, Shantideva is talking about mindfulness of body. Monastics in particular, but also any serious lay practitioner, should be aware of how they are conducting themselves, whether they are sitting, moving around or sleeping. His Holiness places quite an emphasis on how we sleep, I guess because it's very easy to go astray during dreams and so on. His Holiness says we need a strong sense of mindfulness when we go to sleep, and it's recommended that we lie on the right side with the right hand under the head and the left arm resting along the ridge formed by the left side. This, of course, is the lion posture, which the Buddha assumed when he died. In any case, I found it difficult to maintain mindfulness during dreams and have to admit to doing things that I was ashamed of when I woke up. So I think it takes a lot of training unless you already have quite a purified mind. If you want more understanding of what the Buddha meant by mindfulness of the body, you should read the Satipatthana Sutra, where he goes quite extensively into how to observe the body and its functions. Here's an extract to give you some indication. Again, because a bhikkhu bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking forward and returning. Who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away. Who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl. Who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting. Who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating. Who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. In this way, he abides contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. Even though this is addressed to monks, it can equally be applied by lay people who wish to establish powerful mindfulness, the ground of all excellent practice. Having addressed bodily mindfulness, Shantideva then goes on to mindfulness of the mind. With the utmost effort I should check to see that the crazed elephant of my mind is not wandering off, but is bound to the great pillar of thinking about Dharma. Those who strive by all means for concentration should not wander off even for a moment. By thinking, how is my mind behaving, they should closely analyze their mind. The mind, he says, is like a rogue elephant. You have no idea what such an out-of-control animal is going to do next, but you can be very sure that by the time it's finished, it will have created a lot of destruction. Unless you tether a crazy elephant to a very sturdy post, it is sure to cause suffering. Similarly, when the mind is allowed to roam as it wishes, it will surely lead us into all sorts of very unpleasant situations. However, if we keep the mind all the time tethered to the Buddha's teachings, it will have much less chance of causing mayhem. For instance, if we deeply contemplate cause and effect, it will quickly become clear how negative actions will create many immediately unseen problems and suffering for us, so we will tend to avoid them. For instance, say you take the precept not to take what is not given, that is, not to steal. Then a popular movie you really want to see comes onto a website like the Pirate Bay and you have the chance to download it for free. It may be easy to think, how will downloading this hurt anybody? The studios and makers of the movie are making millions and nobody will care if I watch it. Where's the harm? That will lead to a download, but also a downfall of breaking the precept of stealing as well as stealing. So then you shouldn't be surprised when in a future life you're born with very few resources and find it extremely difficult to get the things you need. Furthermore, as Shanti Davis says, if we're trying to practice concentration, letting the mind go and not tethering it to the Dharma will be a big hindrance to developing calm abiding or even lesser concentrations. Very easily through our attachments and aversions, we will create obstacles to meditative concentration. What happens when you see a beautiful person and allow the mind to dwell on their attractiveness? Of course, you become enchanted and then any shamatha meditation you do easily becomes a meditation on the desirability of the person you're captivated by. Shantideva says, We therefore have to always be mindful of what the mind is doing and keep bringing it back to full awareness of what is going on in the present moment. If we remember the dharma, When seeing a desirable body, we can immediately take the body apart and try to find what is so fascinating about skin, hair, blood, bones, flesh, urine, feces, spit, toenails and so on, all in a heap. Thinking like this, the attachment fades and we're less likely to become entrapped. Pema Chodron says that this verse refers to a very tight practice, which is traditionally described as walking a plank over a very steep ravine. We should try to be as present as a person in such a situation. But then in the next verse, Shantideva tells us when not to be so restricted. But if I'm unable to do this, when afraid or involved in celebrations, then I should relax. Likewise, it has been taught that at times of giving, one may be indifferent to certain aspects of moral discipline. In his commentary, His Holiness admits that while meditation is very important, if we encounter a fearful situation, it would be foolish to keep on meditating. We have to be practical and escape. The Buddha, out of his compassion, exhorted people to behave in a realistic way, he says. Now that puts me in mind of a person I knew some time ago who went to America and decided to do a retreat somewhere in the cave in the Rocky Mountains. One day day while he was sitting on his cushion a cougar appeared in the entrance to the cave. There was no escape so my friend just quietly sat looking at the cougar. He said after a while the cat just moved on without disturbing him any further. I guess in such a situation, acting in a realistic way is accepting your fate and generating whatever love and compassion you can. And that seemed to work for my friend. In the last two lines of the stanza, likewise it has been taught that at times of giving, one may be indifferent to certain aspects of moral discipline. Shantideva indicates that relaxing is similar to certain situations where it may be permissible to compromise our ethics. His Holiness uses the example of buying live fish from a fisherman to release as a practice of the generosity of saving lives. If the fisherman asks where you're going to release the fish and you suspect he will just go and catch them again, His Holiness says you may have to lie. In such a case, lying is not non-virtuous. Because it has a virtuous purpose, it becomes a virtuous action. However, Pema Chodron interprets this verse in terms of practical advice for an overzealous meditator, especially a beginner. A fledgling bodhisattva, for example, she says, who goes to a party and tries to practice tight mindfulness instead of just relaxing and having fun. Such rigid self-observation is too harsh, and in terms of rousing the good heart of bodhicitta, counterproductive. The best advice for a new bodhisattva is to tame your mind without losing your sense of humor. Now, as I've said before, westerners are quite prone to trying too far, too quickly. Our attitude of, I want it and I want it now, means we dive into practice without any understanding of how the mind will react. We think that if we practice very intensely, soon we'll become enlightened. Then we become like Pema Chodron's fledgling bodhisattva who cannot go to a party without being obsessed with everything that the mind and body are doing. Actually, all that happens is that we become very uptight and soon face burnout. You may remember I once mentioned a time I was in Bodhgaya taking teachings from His Holiness, when I met a young man who had just met the Dharma. He'd been to teachings about the hell realms and how to purify negative karma through prostrations. So he decided that he was going to do one thousand prostrations a day from then on. I talked to him about a week after he'd started and asked him how he was going. Terrible, he said. I'm trying to do a thousand prostrations a day and I'm hating it. The mind has become so tight. What should I do? The answer, of course, was simple. Do as many prostrations as will keep you happy. Maybe fifty or a hundred a day or even fewer. In comparison, in Dharamsala, I met a monk from Mongolia who had decided to do a three-month retreat of 100,000 prostrations. Because he was not used to the exercise, he started off with something like 100 or 200 a day. Steadily, he built up the number until he was able to do 1,000 a day without becoming unhappy. In fact, he said he was enjoying the retreat, if I remember correctly. So, we should practice according to our ability and slowly build up to a tight practice like the Mongolian and not dive into the deep end like the young Westerner in Bogaya. Then Shantideva goes on, I should undertake whatever deed I have intended to do and think of doing nothing other than it. With my mind applied to that task, I should set about for the time being to accomplish it. By acting in this way, all will be done well, but by acting otherwise, neither action will be done. Likewise, there will be increase in the proximate disturbing conceptions that come from lack of alertness. His Holiness says that this means that whenever we have a number of virtuous actions to complete, it's best to do them one by one, finishing one before going on to the next. Leaving one half done, he says, just makes us inefficient in completing both. Pema children blames not being able to finish on a distracted mind. Like three-year-old children, our minds jump from one thing to another and our bodies follow. In this age of multitasking, she writes, Shantideva's instruction is radical. Calm the mind by doing one thing at a time. If we're not fully present, naturally the mental disturbances will increase. We will become more distracted and more unused to fully completing the tasks we set out to do. I'm reminded of a magazine journalist I once worked with who was a very good writer, but who could never get his articles in on time. It appeared he was often distracted from what he was supposed to be doing. Eventually, the editor of the magazine had to let him go because the magazine was always behind deadline. Pema Chodron says that afflictions cannot multiply if we are fully present and urges us to try experimenting for ourselves. As soon as we come fully to into the present moment, the afflictive emotions and mental disturbances quieten down. This is very obvious. When, for instance, we are concentrated on washing the car and on nothing else, it's difficult for stories about the past or the future to disturb our mind. Everything is just water, soap and the action of washing. At that moment, nothing else matters and so the mind is at peace. But let the mind latch onto the thought of the argument we had with our partner the day before and immediately, losing the present, we're thrown into the grinding of disturbing emotion and story and, mindless, we'll probably leave large areas of the car unwashed. Then Shantideva goes on to talk about the perils of talking. If I happen to be present while a senseless conversation is taking place or if I happen to see some kind of spectacular show I should abandon attachment towards it. Now, among the ten non-virtuous actions, that's killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, slander, harsh words and gossip, harmful thoughts, covetousness and wrong view, gossip attracts the weakest negative karma. However, because it's so easy to indulge in, the karma can become stronger than killing, one of the worst karmic actions. Unless we work in an abattoir or do a lot of gardening, We don't kill all that often, so don't create a lot of negative killing karma. It can be the opposite with senseless conversation. Actually, Shantideva is not only talking about gossip here, but any conversation that is not concerned with improving the mind, and in particular, conversation that might increase attachment or aversion. Maybe conversation about politics is a good example, for it stirs up all sorts of emotions and conflicts. Pema Children tells about an American man by the name of Little Joe Gomez. In the early 70s, she writes, he met some people who were practicing complete silence. They were wearing chalkboards around their necks in case they needed to communicate. This got Little Joe laughing. When someone asked him what was so funny, he said, very easy not to talk, very difficult to talk mindfully. As far as he was concerned, the better practice was to converse consciously. Going back to the last two lines, or if I happen to see some kind of spectacular show, I should abandon attachment towards it, today we're also obsessed with entertainment to the point that every move of an entertainer becomes newsworthy. Not only are we riveted by big-budget movies and stage shows laden with special effects, but even if an actor has a slight spat with her partner, it immediately makes headlines. Now, if this isn't conducive to increasing afflictive emotions and a distracted mind, what is? Shanti Shantideva says that if we have to be involved in some ways in such things, keep a mental distance, be mindful, and don't become intrigued. And with that, our time is up. Thanks for joining me today, and I hope you'll do so again next week. Please dedicate any positive energy from today's program to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Thank you and goodbye. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3, or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 3377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering.